It's good to see all of your beautiful faces this morning. How's everybody doing? Feeling awake? Good, good. It's good to see you guys. All right, so starting off, one of my proudest moments of my life, proudest moments of my life was in college uh, playing intramural football. Anyone know what intramurals are? So intramurals in college, they're not real sports. They're just all of us that wish we could still be playing sports, playing sports together. So I played intramural football in college. Uh, where I went to school, you would play your, with your floor. Guys on your floor, you'd make a team. And there were 8 to 12 teams that would play, and we'd play throughout the fall, and it was a blast. I was getting to relive my glory days. Uh, I played wide receiver. I just loved football, and I was all about it. So played wide receiver, got to score some touchdowns, had a good time. It was so fun. But one of my proudest moments playing intramural football was one of my friends came to me um, at one point and he said, hey man, there's some rumors going on around, or rumors being said about you that you played college football somewhere and transferred to this little Christian school because you felt called to be a pastor. Now that absolutely was not true, but it made me feel really good. <laughs> I felt, I was like, man, yeah! And now... My friend, knowing my friend that told me this, could he have been lying to me to like pump me up for the next game? Absolutely. That might have totally been what he was doing. And I honestly didn't realize that till this week because that's something I've held on to. I'm like, oh, it feels so good. But it feels great when people think you're good at something, right? And it's funny too, because there's this stereotype uh, amongst us former athletes when we get talking about our, our glory days. We talk about the, well, I could have. I could have, I could have made the league. I could have played college ball. We love to relive and talk about what we could have done. If you've seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite, I always think of Uncle Rico. He's just like, if coach would have put me in, we would have won state, I'd have gone pro, and I'd live in a mansion right now, soaking it up in a hot tub with my soulmate. You know, It's like, that's what us former athletes do. Maybe not to that extreme, but we do it. There's a lot psychologically going on for us as we you know, deal with our dead dreams. And... As we go through that, I could have made it, when we say, oh, I could have made it, it expresses um, a positive view of ourselves. It strokes our ego. It makes us, makes us feel good to think, maybe I was good enough to do that, right? And as Christians and as people, we do the same thing, but we kind of flip, it on, flip that I could have on its head to I would never. Instead of saying, I could have to make myself feel good or to think about it and feel good about myself in that way, I say, I would never. We think about these hypothetical situations of wrongdoing, and we think, I'm a good person who knows right from wrong. And, if, and being a good person, if I was faced with this decision to do something I know I'm not supposed to do, I'm a good person. I would never do that. And I'm sure all of us at different points in our, of our life have said, I would never do that. I would never lie to someone close to me, especially about something important. I would never steal. I would never have sex outside of marriage. I would never break a promise. I would never get divorced. And the the list goes on and on of things we've all said that we would never do. But as we go down that list, we realize that we all have fallen short, that we all have failed. Even the things that we said we would never do, many of us have fallen short and failed and done those things. And what we're left with is this truth that we either have accepted or we need to learn to accept, that we are imperfect people. We are all imperfect people. 
So our reading today from Mark 14, 27 through 31 is one of these I would never stories. Jesus tells the disciples that they all will desert him. And in verse 29, we, say Peter, we see Peter say, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. I would never, Jesus. Verse 30, Jesus replies, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, or deny three times that you even know me. Peter insists, no way, Jesus. I'll die before I deny you. I would never. And then we go on to read something that all four gospels record, that, G, that Peter does deny Jesus three times. And in Luke chapter 22, there's this really poignant moment describing Peter's denial where Peter's just denied Jesus for the third time, the rooster crows the second time. And we see in verse 61, Jesus and Peter make eye contact. And in that moment, Peter, everything kind of comes full circle. Everything he'd said earlier that night that he would never do. And he's just done those things and he's staring his Lord and his Savior and the love of his life in the face, realizing that he's failed. And in verse 62, we see he is devastated and Peter runs off weeping. And I think about the things that Peter must have been processing in that moment. Because the Gospels and really the New Testament gives us this picture of Peter, this evidence that Peter is a bold dude. In Matthew Matthew chapter 14, we see uh, Peter's the one that gets out of the boat to walk on water, out to Jesus. He's the only one who does that. In Matthew 16, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He's the one that does that. In Acts chapter two, filled with the Holy Spirit's boldness and combined with his own, Peter offers the first gospel message and 3,000 come to faith. We get this picture of a guy who is absolutely bold about everything he does. This isn't Peter failing in a weakness. This isn't Peter sinning in a way that it's like, oh, you know, I struggle with that. This is Peter failing really in his strength. This is Peter failing. I would think he would say to himself before this, I would never fail to be bold, but he did. This is the highest degree of failure, to fail at something you are specifically designed to do. And I can't imagine imagine the anguish and the shame and the grief that Peter must have felt in that moment a contradiction of his person. And like us, like us, Peter was an imperfect person. And like us, we have, like we will experience or we have experienced, Peter had a moment of great sin and failure. And so the big question today that I'm asking that I wanna look through in this talk is how does Jesus want us to respond to our failures? That's the question we all need to be asking ourselves today and every day. How does Jesus want Me, how does he want us to respond to our failures? So today we're going to be doing three lessons in failure. And the first lesson that I want to talk about is that we need to die to self-righteousness. We need to die to self-righteousness. So question, what is self-righteousness? Now this isn't the dictionary definition. This is my definition. My definition of self-righteousness is having the belief that you are good or righteous by your own work and or, and or and that you're better than others. Having the belief that you are good by your own work or 
that you're better than others. And Peter is self-righteous in this story. I am good. I would never do that, Jesus. In fact, we also see Peter say, even if everyone else does, I won't. Peter's looking at the other disciples. He's like, ah, maybe they would. But I never would deny you, Jesus. See, failure confronts self-righteousness head on. Self-righteousness puts us in this place where we, we can't fail. We're good, so we won't fail. I'm, I'm holier than thou or better than others, so I won't, I can't fail. So as someone who's struggling with self-righteousness has to face their failure, like Peter did, even his, in his strength he faced his failure, really it's incompatible. It's going to bring the walls of self-righteousness down really quickly. How do we become self-righteous? My next question, how do we become self-righteous? First, I want to make a comment. I think self-righteousness is one of the greatest threats to the church. I think for those of us especially that have followed Jesus for a long time, this is one of the enemy, Satan's favorite attacks against you and me to get us with this self-righteous attitude. And there's a couple of ways we become self-righteous. First, we go to a performance-based relationship with God. We go to a performance-based relationship with God. Now, before I move forward, I have to give some credit. Nicholas and I had a great conversation in his office earlier this week. A lot of this comes from his um, incredible wisdom, so I can't claim it as my own. But we go to a performance-based relationship with God. When we're self-righteous, we relate to God through our work. And if you follow Jesus for a long time, you hear that and you know, that's not right. We're not supposed to relate to God through our works. It's by grace we are saved through faith, not by works, so no one can boast, right? We know these verses. We know the theology. Yet our actions, our words, and our deeper beliefs and motivations would say otherwise. Because when we, when we give our life to Jesus, we get caught in this tension of, Jesus saved me, but I'm still broken. And in dealing with that brokenness, what so often we do is we focus our energy on external things, on what, what others hear me say, what others see me do, what I hear me say and see myself do. I can control my actions. I can control my words. And so my life becomes focused on making sure all of these external things line up with God, but we get to this place where we start to believe if I perform, if I do all the things that I'm supposed to do and say all the things that I'm supposed to say, then God will love me. That's a performance-based relationship with God. Another way we become self-righteous is through complacency. We mistakenly believe we have arrived. This is something that I've struggled with, getting complacent or believing that I've arrived. And we hear this idea of I've arrived as a Christian. And again, it's something that if you've been following Jesus for an amount of time, you were like, no, that's not right. And yet we still do it. We know in our head, I'm a sinner. But we believe in our heart, you know, I'm a pretty good Christian. I'm pretty good as Christians go. I've got a lot of my life under control. As the saying goes, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't chew, and I hang with those who do, or don't hang with those who do. I think Jesus would have some words for that statement, but that's another sermon. Got a lot of my life under control. I don't, maybe I don't cuss. I don't have sex outside of marriage. I don't steal, cheat, murder. I tithe. I go to church when the doors are open. I've got a lot of things right. There's this place that we can get, though, as Christians, where we think, I'm pretty good as a Christian. I've got a lot under control. And as we get complacent, it's like, I'm pretty good. 
we get complacent and we lose conviction to, to grow and to be more like Christ. And this affects us, this self-righteousness affects us by really stunting our spiritual growth. When we deep down that we've accepted that we are good by our own actions or that we're better than others, what happens is that we, we maintain what we have and we stop growing. I'm good with where I'm at and so I stop growing. And I stop praying prayers like Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. It's like that idea of competition. Competition raises the level of performance. When, when I'm competing and someone else is good at something, I raise the level of my performance to try to beat them. And this is, a, I kind of think, is a spectrum that we function on as Christians sometimes. When we get to a level where we realize I'm a pretty good Christian compared to those around me, we get complacent and we stop, we stop growing. Ultimately, though, that's all a farce. We're playing the wrong game if we're relating to God through performance and through comparison. More on that later. How else does self-righteousness affect us? Self-righteousness gets us into this place of judgmentalism. Self-righteousness gets us into this place where we get extremely judgmental. In Romans 1 and 2, really in the whole book of Romans, Paul spends a lot of time rebuking this division that's happening in the church in Rome between Jews and Gentiles. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul describes God's judgment of sin, the lostness and sinfulness of Gentiles and people far from God. And you can imagine the Jews in the church that Paul is writing to as they're reading chapter 1 about God's judgment on sin world and the Gentiles are like, yeah, Paul, go get them, those Gentiles. But then in chapter 2, Paul says in verse 1, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. The Jews in Rome are a perfect picture of self-righteousness, a mirror for us to look into, to see ourselves. Self-righteousness produces this feeling, I'm better than you, or I'm not as bad as you. This is what we see happening in Romans. And like the Jews, we see what's going on in the world. We watch the news, we're on social media, we're paying attention, and yeah, the world is broken. Yeah, people in the world are messed up. But we get to this place where we say, at least I'm not like them. Or at least I'm, I'm better than they are. What Paul is doing to the Jews and what Paul is doing to us is he's grabbing us by the shirt. And he's saying, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. And have no excuse. You say they're wicked and should be punished. You are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. Just like he's talking to the Jews, man, I think he's talking to us. We may not be worshiping other gods. We may not be sexually immoral. But in our self-righteousness, a lot of times we're so focused on the external that we ignore the internal. We're like, well, I don't do the external things that the world is doing. At least I'm not messed up in that way. But we like put these tears in terms of sin and brokenness. If I got the external under control, then everything's good, right? Or at least I'm better than they are. But Paul has put it all on a, on a level playing field. In our self-righteousness, we ignore our hearts. We ignore what's going on inside. We ignore our relational sins. And so while the Jews are rah, rah, go Paul, go get those Gentiles, it's funny because they miss 
some things that Paul said in chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. Paul says, their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. So while we're going, rah, rah, yeah, those Gentiles, sexually immoral, yeah, worshiping other gods, we overlook sins that absolutely we're struggling with, that are of a more heart and internal nature. When I think about myself, when I think about Christians that I've met, sins that we struggle with that a lot of times we overlook or we just gloss over, greed, hate, envy, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior and gossip, backstabbers, proud, boastful, Refusing to understand, breaking their promises, heartless and having no mercy. Those are sins that apply to me. And those are sins that probably apply to you in some way. But we gloss over them because as long as we've got all the outside looking good, you know, that's good enough. At least I'm better than so-and-so. Jesus confronts this as well with the Pharisees in Matthew 23 Verses 25 through 26, you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. We stop working on our heart. And Jesus is saying, that's where the work is supposed to start. If you're working on the heart, if you're working on the sin that so easily entangles that's happening and battling within you, if you start there, then the outside will become clean. It's an inside-out process, not an outside-in. Self-righteousness in our judgmentalism absolutely affects our love of neighbor. We begin to, if we're self-righteous, have a lack of love for our neighbor. In our judgmentalism, we're set against them. We compare ourselves. We're looking at our neighbor and saying, at least I'm not them, or at least I don't do what they do. But if we're set against them, how can we live out our primary mandate and call to love them, to love our neighbor, our Christian neighbor, our non-Christian neighbor? How can we do that if we're stuck in a pit of judgmentalism? Sadly, I think this happens to a lot of us if we're being self-righteous, is we're often more, we know that we're supposed to serve the community, love the community, but we're so concerned with how we appear loving and serving the community, that we may think things like, well, we don't want, we want to do, we want to serve and love people, but in a way that they know that I don't, I don't condone their behavior. I don't accept them as they are. They need to know that they have to change. That's a self-righteous mindset. Rather than seeing the world with God's eyes, that all those people out there are made in the image of God, beloved by God, Jesus would be eating at their table getting in their mess, loving them right where they're at. Appearances, forget about them. Our mandate isn't to stay holy and love if you can. Our mandate is to love others and that this is holiness. This is what godliness looks like. It's to love others, period. Forget what it looks like. Forget how others perceive what you're doing. Forget even how they perceive it, just love them like Jesus. Serve them, meet needs. 
So how do we die to self-righteousness? First, we have to learn to relate to God through grace. To die to self-righteousness, we have to learn to relate to God through grace, which also changes how we see ourselves. Ephesians 2.8, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. 2 Corinthians 12.9, my grace is all you need. This is God talking to Paul. My power works best in weakness. Grace is the generous, free, undeserved love, mercy of God. And what we do and when we relate to God through grace, we all have to come to this place where we realize I need Jesus. That my self-perception isn't based off of me being good by my own works. My self-perception of my, of, and how I value myself isn't based off of me being better than others. But how I see myself and perceive my life is I need Jesus. I am broken. My sin isn't any better or worse than anyone else's. I can't and I don't earn his love. It's freely given. He is so good and all I need is him. God needs to get us all to that place of of brokenness and and of acknowledgement that we all are equally as desperately in need of his grace. From the moment we give our life to Jesus until the day we die, we're not on this journey as Christians of like needing his grace less and less. I need it as much today as I did when I gave my heart to Jesus till the day that I die. And as we learn to relate to God and ourselves through his grace, we learn to relate to others through grace. We need to, when we accept our need for Jesus and our own imperfection, that my sin isn't any better or worse than theirs, we can actually see others with empathy. We see others with God's heart of love. Rather than by comparison, how good are they versus how good I am, we just see them as like, man, I know I need Jesus, and so do they. I know I'm broken, so I understand maybe why they could be broken too. And it gives us this heart of compassion, love, and empathy that enables us to see them with God's eyes and love them with God's heart. And just go plain and simple, I'm here to love you and serve you and show you Jesus. Second lesson in failure. Will failure be my undoing or my rebirth? Will failure be my undoing or rebirth? So I wanna look at Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. This is a parallel story of Jesus predicting uh, Peter's denial. And in verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. So a couple details I wanna look at. Jesus pleads in prayer for Peter. He's not just praying a quick prayer like, God, please help Peter. He's on, I just picture Jesus on his knees pleading with the Father. Lord, this is gonna be a tough moment for him. Help him through this, this failure. We also see Jesus use the, the wording that your faith should not fail. In the Greek, it implies this meaning that your this meaning that your faith will not disappear completely. If you picture like the moon and when um, when the crescent like gets to the very edge and most of it's darkness, but you see this little bit of light. That's the idea that's being communicated, that your faith will not disappear completely. Jesus knows that this failure is going to be a deeply testing moment for Peter, that it could make or break his faith, that it could be his undoing or it could be his rebirth. And we too go through 
failures and experience sin that could make or break our faith, that can take us and wipe us out, or that can draw us near to the Father. So one of my favorite things I get to do every week is uh, work out with my friend Doug Newby. Is Doug in the house? I don't see you, but I love you wherever you're at. You're amazing. But I work out with Doug Newby every week, and we do weight training. And weight training, I think, is a great illustration for this uh, undoing or rebirth, for either growth or for catastrophe. Because when you lift weights, it's good to push yourself to failure. It's good to lift a weight that is about as heavy as you can go, because that's how you get stronger, right? But what happens, what can happen, is if you don't have the right pieces in place, if you don't have spotters there to watch you, or if you don't offload their weight correctly, it can be uh, catastrophic. I remember the, the USC football player um, quite a few years ago that was bench pressing and dropped, dropped the bar on his neck and crushed his trachea, and it nearly killed him. Weightlifting, can, going to failure can be good. It helps us grow and get stronger, but it also can be catastrophic. And it's the same for us in our failure in our life. It's the same for us maybe when we have or will experience a great falling or a great sin or just any kind of failure. It can make or break our faith. What are the factors that go into this? What are the factors that can contribute to our undoing rather than our rebirth? And I think one place we have to start is with pride and with insecurity. When we're dealing with pride and insecurity, Pride and failure don't mix well, going back to the self-righteous person. Pride and insecurity says, I can't be seen as someone who fails. Or I can't see myself as someone who fails. I think those are the voices of pride and security. I think there's other voices that can do that too, but that's really the heart of it, is that I can't be seen as someone who fails by others, or I can't see myself as someone who fails. What happens in that place is that we hide and bury and avoid our failures, we pull away from others and we pull away from God and we lack transparency because it's all about keeping up appearances both for ourselves and how we see ourselves and how others see us. And others may not be able to see that you're undone and broken and lost. You may not even be able to see it, but inside it's obvious. God can see our brokenness. Rebirth and failure takes humility and relating to God through grace. Going back to some of my comments from earlier, we have to realize that God loves us in our mistakes and in our weaknesses. We have to see ourselves with God's eyes of grace, that you don't have to keep up appearances, that God loves the real and perfect you. When you're able to see that God loves the real and perfect you, and you're able to love and accept yourself as, as an imperfect, broken person in need of Jesus, then we no longer have to hide all of our failures. We no longer have to keep up appearances. We can just accept the truth of this life. And a lot of times that's a lot more refreshing to people than the face that we put on. The other factor that causes failures to be undoing, I think, is shame. I think shame is a primary culprit behind so many people's undoing as a result of their sin. This happened to, I think, some of my friends who I grew up in the church with, who loved, who loved Jesus, and we're, we were following Jesus together. But we go off to college, and we have our failures. We make our mistakes. We do the things that we know aren't what God wants us to do. But what happens to those struggling with shame is that they, they think that God, when, when we fail, that God is ashamed of us. 
that God is ashamed of me, that he's mad at me, that he's putting me at a distance and in time out and saying, you know, I need to be mad at you for a while, get away from me and come back when, you know, you felt bad enough about what you've done. But that's not the heart of God. The key to being rebirthed out of failure when shame is your struggle is understanding God's heart for you. In his unfailing radical grace, mercy, and love, he's only ever inviting you in. When we mess up, when we fail, it's not distance from God that we need, it's closeness. And God is inviting us in. I think I use this in sermons too much, but I'd always, I always think of it as the, the story of the prodigal son, the father running to the son. Even in our failure, God desires us to be close with him, to come and sit at his feet. Our failures shouldn't push us from God, but he is literally drawing us in. He wants to show his love for you, pour out his grace and his mercy all over you. We instinctively, when we operate out of shame, want to get away from others and get away from God. But God is drawing us in. And to be rebirthed out of failure, if shame is your struggle, is to come and sit at the Lord's feet, to accept his unbelievable love and grace and mercy. I imagine him just like a good parent stroking the head of their child. I love you. It's okay. We all fall. We mess up. I'm here for you. I love you. It's okay. You'll get up. You'll get through this. Worship team, if you'll come up as I close. Um, my last point, the last lesson in failure is repentance. Learning, how to, uh, learning about repentance. In John 21, 15 through 17, we get, um, we get to see a moment. So Peter, has, um, Peter denies Jesus three times. We, obviously, Jesus is crucified um, and then resurrected. And this is one of the last things we see Peter do, or Jesus do with his disciples. And they're all eating together. Um, and Jesus kind of has this moment with, with Peter to address kind of the elephant in the room of what Peter's, Peter's failure and his struggle. In John 21, 15 through 17, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told them. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. This is Peter's moment of repentance with Jesus. This is Jesus' way of calling Peter to repentance. But I love the fact that Jesus, in addressing Peter's failure, his sin, his mistake, he's not doing what I would do, and maybe many of you would do, and say, Jesus, okay, Peter, here are like the circumstances that, that led to you failing and, and sinning, so let's look at all of the, the aspects that, that caused that situation, and here's how to avoid them in the future, and set up some barriers. You know, that's biblical, that's good. But that wasn't Jesus' way of dealing with Peter's repentance. Instead of focusing on the way that G, uh, Peter was living, understanding that repentance is this, not just an idea of the heart of sorrow, but it's also an action of turning back to God. 
Jesus isn't turning Peter back to a way of living. He's turning Peter back to himself. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I was struggling to whether to put this point in my sermon, but even in, in my failures, I can hear Jesus asking, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. He's calling us back to himself. He's calling us back to the center of what this whole thing is about. It's not calling us to a way of life, even though his way is the best way and we wanna live it out. But Jesus isn't focused on the external. He's focused on the internal. Do you love me? And when he can turn us back to that place, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. That is the, the heart of this faith. That is what this thing is all about. That's what we need to return to. That's the kind of repentance I want to experience. Lord, this is all about you. I love you. I want to follow you. So know that in your, if, as you deal with your failure, as you deal with failures of the past, the present, or the future, know that God is calling you closer to himself, not pushing you away. And, and yes, we need to probably set up some barriers and some plans for how to not fail again, but that's not the primary. Jesus is starting with, hey, do you love me? Do you love me? Is relationship with me the most important thing in your life? And when we come to that place where we say, yes, Lord, that is all I want, then Jesus is like, great, let's get to work. Feed my sheep. We all stand with me as we go into a time of worship and I'll pray. Jesus, I just thank you for this incredible group of people in your house today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you just would pour out um, your love, your wisdom and your word over each one of us. God, we brought in all probably some unique weight, some burdens today. Lord, I pray that you just would be our lifter of burdens. God, that you would release some people from, from shame and from condemnation that they've been feeling for years. God, may they experience just the freedom of your love, that you're drawing them in, not pushing them away. God, may people's eyes and hearts be opened up to your love. God, may we, the, the facades just fall off. May the masks that we put on for other people and ourselves, God, may those things just fall away in your love. May we accept our brokenness and our need for you, Lord, and experience the power that comes in when we acknowledge our weakness and say yes to your grace and yes to your mercy and yes to your love. Not only how that impacts us internally, but God, how that impacts us as a church and how we function and how we love one another and how we love our community. May we be a community, not just that knows your grace, but that experiences your grace and pours it out in everything that we do. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.